And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1178 of the Pew Bible. I don't have a hand, foot, and mouth disease. I don't have COVID. So don't worry too much. I just have a nasty cold. So I'm going to do my best to speak. And it might be a little shorter this morning than normal. So if you're visiting with us, uh, you might note that. Those of you who have been here for a while. But I'm going to do my best. So it's a wonderful, wonderful passage that we come to. We're in the letter of 1 Timothy written by Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, who is serving um, in the role, really, of pastor in the church in Ephesus. Now, imagine with me, if you will, for just a moment, imagine a great ancient city near the Mediterranean Sea. The city is the regional Roman capital and one of the most important cities in the ancient world. It sits on the western flank of what we call today Turkey, but they called Asia or Asia Minor. It faces west. It faces Greece and Rome. It looks to the west. The sun there, if you've been in that area, you know the sun is incredibly bright and the waves incredibly blue. But it's not the city that stands out so much as the massive temple, the edifice that dominates the entire city. Dominating the entire skyline of this capital city is one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. Most of the other buildings in the city were only a few stories high at best, but the temple to Diana or Artemis is a series of 100 columns, each of them six stories high, as high maybe higher than our own steeple this morning. Thousands come here to worship. It is a bucket list trip for ancient people. Not only that, but if you've been to any of the ruins of the ancient world, you know that most of the commerce, most of the life of the city revolves around the temple. It is the cultural, religious, and economic center of this great city, Ephesus, and one of the greatest sites of the ancient world. Into this great city, dominated by this enormous pagan temple, comes the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19, a relatively simple, unimpressive, if not brilliant, rabbi. And yet he quickly causes a riot, a riot to break out. It begins with a silversmith who crafted images of Diana for a living, sort of a tourism business. Afraid for the future of his religious tourism business, he speaks against Paul, and in doing so unintentionally, he gives us words that are quite lovely and stirring. He says, men... You know that from this business, that is from the temple, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. 
Now you have to understand that paganism, as is true today in our land, had all the money, had all the armies, had all the government support. They had this massive temple. They had endless pilgrims and offerings. They had it all. And yet they were terrified of this one little Jewish man. It makes me hope for our own times. And it's a reminder that the truth, no matter how small, is always dangerous to those who hate it. Well, you probably know the rest of the story, if you're familiar at all with Acts. A riot breaks out against Paul and the Christians. Some Christians are seized. But thankfully, the Romans, the secular government, steps in and brings an end to the disorder. However, before the disorder is put down, the whole populace of Ephesus gathers, and for two hours they chant these words, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. These scenes and these memories are clearly in the mind of Paul as he now writes to Timothy ministering in Ephesus. And so at the very heart of this letter, 1 Timothy, we have verses 14 through 16. We have here the imagery, as we saw last week, of a temple. Paul writes that the church of Jesus Christ is the household of the living God, unlike the dead statues in the pagan temple. And then he adds in verse 15, the church is the pillar, is the true pillar and foundation of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is not Artemis of the Ephesians, but great is the mystery of godliness, the gospel. Today we consider the great mystery of godliness that toppled that temple and turned upside down the world and freed the entire Gentile world from paganism. It is the clear confession of Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. Would you please stand as we read these lovely verses together? 1 Timothy 3, 14, 15, and 16, the heart of this letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up into glory. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, as we just heard read from Colossians, the mystery is great. And as Paul says there, the mystery is Christ, his glory, his beauty, his greatness, his kingdom, which is now and is coming, his ascension into your presence, his presence now with us in our worship. It is Christ who has given birth to the church. Christ upholds her and Christ is her confession. Open our hearts then to receive with joy this mystery 
and to ponder it deeply to your glory and honor so that we might draw near to him. For we pray and ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning or most likely in your Bible, I know in my Bibles in my office, you will notice that verse 16, which is our verse for this morning, is laid out differently. The sides are indented. The editors are trying to tell you that verse 16 is music or poetry at least. I think probably almost certainly it is music. It's a hymn. It does not come across in English, but in Greek, each of these lines rhyme and are laid out in parallel fashion. So that what we're looking at today is so very precious because it is a very early Christian hymn or poetic confession. Apparently, the Ephesian church, the church that's being spoken of here, was familiar with this early song. Maybe it was even written there in Ephesus. And I say that because notice what Paul says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Or more literally, great is the mystery we say together, that we sing together, that we confess together as a church. We can't be for absolute sure, but it seems quite likely that this hymn was written to counteract the chanting of Diana's greatness, or at least as Paul's response to that event. Along with passages like Philippians 2, which is also an early Christian hymn, this is yet another undeniable evidence that the New Testament church wrote music and wrote confessional material. They relied upon the Psalms, but they were not restricted to them alone. In Scripture itself, we have the fragments of their efforts. And so when we sing, as we did this morning, the doxology or the Gloria Patri, or we recite the Apostles' Creed, as we'll do tonight, we are really following the example of Scripture itself and of all of Christian history. Now, I think it's very important that we do that today, that we confess our faith, that we regularly repeat the major doctrines of our faith, that we hear them every time we attend church, and that every visitor or online listener is confronted every week with the mystery of godliness, the witness of the church of Christ. Paul has just said in verse 15 that the church is the pillar of the truth. As a pillar holds up a roof, so the church holds up to the world the mystery and message of Jesus Christ. And just as he finishes saying that, just as he has finished saying that we are the pillar of the truth, we receive this wonderful melodic confession of Jesus' life and ministry. He could have just written the basics out, but instead he chose to use poetry and possibly almost certainly music to reinforce it all. And not for the first time. We've already seen in this letter how Paul has used the phrase, remember this phrase? He said over and over again, this is a faithful saying. 
before laying out a key part of apostolic faith or truth. And this really reinforces, I hope for you, it does for me, one of the two major themes of the pastoral letters. Timothy and Titus, along with the elders, are told repeatedly in these letters to guard the deposit, protect the truth at all costs, preach the truth at all costs, sing the truth at all costs. And the whole church was engaged, and we as a church are engaged, in protecting doctrine and reinforcing truth through music, through confession, and through catechism. And that is why we still use those tools today. But let's begin looking now at the text. Let's focus on this glorious verse. And let's begin with considering with me just for a moment the title that Paul gives to this hymn. He writes in verse 16, Great indeed we confess or say together is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. That's the title here of this fragment. Now in Paul's writing, mystery, the mystery of Jesus is not a complicated series of clues that you have to unravel. It's not a mystery because God's trying to be dark or hide it from us or keep it from us. Rather, when Paul uses words like mystery, he's thinking of men like the prophet Daniel. That's actually where this word is first used in the Bible, actually repeatedly, of Daniel and his visions. When Daniel, you might remember this moment, receives his greatest vision of the future, He sees all the kingdoms of the world coming, and then he sees the kingdom of Christ coming at the end of the Roman Empire. It's at that moment that this word first appears in the Bible, that the mystery, we're told, was given to Daniel, that the mystery was unlocked to him that no one else could understand. None of the other wise men could fathom. In keeping with this, Paul views the mystery, and I hope you got this from Colossians, our reading earlier, Paul views the mystery as the coming of Jesus in the fullness of time. Paul is saying that to some extent, the great plan of God was hidden in the ages prior to Jesus' birth. In fact, even during Jesus' earthly ministry, there was mystery. There was a hiddenness, wasn't there, in what Jesus was doing. Jesus uses this word mystery to describe, for example, why he chose to speak in parables. In Matthew 13, the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you teaching in this way? And Jesus answered to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The parables were meant to give away the truth that was coming, but the truth was still partially hidden in the parable. But now, after Jesus' resurrection, in the work of the apostles and evangelists, the mystery is openly proclaimed as the gospel goes out to all people. To put even a finer point on it, we should say that for Paul, the mystery especially is the inclusion, the inclusion of the Gentiles into Messiah's family. Very few Jews, maybe only a handful, 
saw this coming and the extent to which it would come. When we come in a few months, maybe longer, to Romans 11, Pastor Trefskar will preach this mystery, same language, how hardness has come upon Israel for a time so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. That's a big part of the mystery, that in giving the Messiah, God would not just save his people Israel, but would radically change the entire world, that he would topple millennia of paganism in places like Ephesus, in places like the temple to Diana. This was a great mystery. The idea that the Messiah would be preached in Ephesus and eventually all over the world, and that the Messiah's church would be a thousand times the size of Judaism, that had not fully entered the mind of too many, except for maybe the prophets, men like Isaiah and Daniel. This is the mystery, the revelation of Jesus to the world and his incredible conquest over the entrenched pagan cultures. So much so, his victory so great, that we hardly know what those religions are anymore. Paul tells the Corinthians this, We impart, he writes, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The mystery, now revealed in part, also you'll notice in verse 16, leads to godliness or is godly. It's a mystery of godliness. In other words, Paul here is contradicting the false teachers in Ephesus. They were very into mysteries. Many people today love a good mystery. But they were into mysteries in the sort of esoteric kind, in the esoteric sense, the kind of mysteries that never really go anywhere, and leave you unchanged. So remember how in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul said of the false teachers that they promote speculations. They promote speculations rather than stewardship from God. He goes on to write that they have wandered away into vain discussions, into empty talk. In contrast, The gospel of Jesus, the mystery of the gospel, is no armchair faith. It calls us to live new lives. It changes everything about us. Later in this letter, Paul calls on Timothy to train himself for godliness. Same word. The gospel mystery does not make fuzzy people. It makes people intentional directed, motivated, it trains them to godliness and for godliness. Anything less than this, brothers and sisters, is not the mystery of godliness. 
And so later in the letter, Timothy is warned against those who have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And he is told to preach only what aligns with godliness. So the hymn before us in its title is a mystery unfolded in all of scripture, beginning with Genesis. This mystery for Paul is not though esoteric, but redemptive historical. That is the unfolding of God's gracious plan from before the world began. This plan begins to be revealed in Jesus' mystery, but it is only now fully evident in the finished work of Christ and in the witness of his church. And the church, the true church, clings and confesses these truths. As we say together, great indeed is our confession. As we make confession, we are changed by it, conformed to the image of Christ. We become what we believe. We become what we worship. This is the mystery of godliness, a kind of contemplation that leads to real renewal, not religious speculation. Second, notice with me then in this verse that this mystery is also very much a history. This mystery is a history. The mystery poem records a series of real past events that form the basis of our faith and what we are to tell the world about what we believe. There are six statements and literally in Greek, this is how they go. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed in the nations. He was believed in the world. He was taken in glory. Each of these statements has been crafted. I hope my English translation gives you more the sense of that. It's been crafted to rhyme Structurally, It is a song. It's a poem. Now, today we can't fully uh, unfold this poem because really the whole New Testament is about that song. It's about laying out the events in that song. But I do want to just briefly touch on the beauty of these verses and what it points us to. The first line says, he was manifested in the flesh. This, of course, refers to Christ's incarnation. And you notice the way Paul puts it? He doesn't say that Jesus began to be when he came in the flesh, only that he was manifested in the flesh. Something that already existed, already had life, is now becoming manifest in real time and space. But Jesus was already there. He took on flesh. The God, the Son, fully God, took on flesh through the Virgin Mary. But I don't think we should limit this just to his birth. His in-flesh manifestation should include his whole public ministry. His teachings, his actions, his healings were in the flesh. Remember how he spit upon the ground and healed someone that way. He did his ministry in the flesh. Above all, we should point to the cross as the moment of intense manifestation of his in-flesh status. As he hung there, bleeding, weeping, gasping, it was intensely human, physical, 
It was in the flesh. His incarnation was never more real, never more powerfully presented than while he was on the cross. And so we say, as a church, he was fully manifested in the flesh, fully manifested and tortured in the flesh. But he was also lying to, and these two lines probably go together, the way this hymn is written, one and two, three and four, five and six together. As he was manifested in the flesh, so Paul says, he was vindicated in the spirit. Vindicated in the spirit. This is a reference to Christ's resurrection. Paul begins, for example, the letter of Romans. You heard this in our evening worship. Describing Jesus this way, Paul writes, He was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The spirit of God is the spirit of life, the spirit of creation in Genesis And Jesus was raised to life by the Father through the Spirit, just as we will be one day as well. This act of the Spirit is a vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, in Greek, it was his justification. By raising Jesus from the dead, the Father has made known to the whole world his full approval of Jesus' life and death and has given us as Christians great confidence because we know that it is truly finished, that the offering Jesus made for your sins and my sins has been fully accepted. How do you know? Because he was justified and vindicated in his resurrection. When we think about Jesus' death, we tend to focus on the blood and gore. And it's understandable. Crucifixion is absolutely nasty. And we tend to, when we read those verses, get sort of locked into the physical trauma of what is happening to Jesus. But if you really follow the Gospels, you'll see quite clearly that the physical trauma was horrific to Jesus, yes, but was not the greatest trauma he bore. It was the weight of our sin, the utter rejection of his own people and of the Gentiles. It was the shame of the cross, maybe more than the pain of the cross that stands out in Scripture. This is what's behind Paul's uh, encouragement to us to take up our cross and follow Christ. Most of us are never going to be crucified brutally in that fashion. To take up your cross means... To take up the misery, the public humiliation, the shame. Jesus was openly hated, rejected, and condemned by all the spiritual authorities of his own day. They crucified him as the worst of people. Romans, uh, the Roman people saved crucifixion for only the most intensely evil people. Much as in America today, the death penalty is rarely given except to the worst kinds of murderers, maybe to a terrorist. That's how the cross functioned in that society. 
And so Paul is saying here that in his resurrection, God the Father has vindicated entirely his son, declared him to have been a righteous sufferer, and has glorified him in his resurrection. Line 3 reminds us that all this was seen by the angels. Angels are easy to miss if you're not looking for them in the New Testament, but if you read carefully, you'll notice how they're evident again and again at the key moments of Jesus' life. They're there at his birth. And so every December we sing, Angels We Have Heard on High, or Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But they also came to him, do you remember, in his temptation in the wilderness. And they ministered to him there, and they witnessed his victory over the devil. They were present in the empty grave. You remember the disciples ran and found what? Sitting in the grave. Angels ministering to him, singing of his victory, witnessing his vindication. And the New Testament tells us that angels still long to look into these things. They're fascinated by the unfolding plan of the mystery of godliness, and they act as God's witnesses to it. The next two lines really go together as we continue our hymnic confession. Paul writes, or the author of this hymn writes, he was proclaimed among the Gentiles or the nations. He was believed on in the world, among the goyim, the non-Jews. I don't think we often appreciate how this was, and I think still is in many senses, the greatest miracle of Christ's ministry. What the message of Jesus did to the Gentile world marks it as authentic. And that is the focus here. Paul says he was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. If you're, unless you're Jewish, unless you're Jewish, and most of us are not, understand that for millennia, every ancestor of yours worshipped the moon and stars, probably did human sacrifice, and were utter pagans. Hundreds of years ago, for thousands of years, they lived in absolute spiritual darkness and slavery. And this went on, and it went on, and it went on, and then very suddenly, it began to change in ways unimaginable. This is the greatest mystery and the greatest miracle of Jesus' life. What he has done, what he's doing right now to the nations, and we confess this mystery. As the Western world, the Western, especially I think white Western world, turns away from the Christianity that brought it out of paganism, even as it's doing that, it's a delightful thing to remind Uh, those Western white people, that even as they're turning away, people in Africa, people in China, people in the Middle East are turning to Christ. Why? Because this is the greatest miracle of Jesus' life, his power to save the nations, his power to gather us from every tribe and tongue under one roof. It doesn't seem miraculous because we live with it, especially in this congregation, But if you understand history, you understand this is the greatest surprise of all of history. The massive billion-member church of Jesus stretching into every nation of the world. No one saw this coming. 
No one could imagine this. As the people looked at that temple to Artemis, imagine trying to tell them that day that that temple would be destroyed, but that the message of Jesus would be all over the world, and that the greatest music, the greatest buildings, the greatest works of literature would all be done in the glory of his name or dedicated in one way or another to him. They could not have imagined a world like that. And yet here Paul is confessing it, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And it comes then finally this last line completes our poem and our confession. He was taken up into glory. The Lord Jesus was not just raised from the dead as Lazarus was. Lazarus, you remember, was raised, of course, from the dead, but Lazarus was not resurrected. He was raised from the dead. He came back to life. He lived a certain number of years, I don't know how many, and then Lazarus died a natural death like everyone else. Jesus, though, was vindicated in the spirit and taken up into glory. And that means that he is seated at the right hand of God's glory even now. And this is the perfect place for Paul to end. Jesus enthroned over all things for the church. Jesus enthroned right now over all things for the sake of his church. The church, our church, every true church, confesses then his birth, his resurrection, and his ascension. Please do not be misled by this sermon. I've only touched on these things, skimmed them. This is our confession to the world, and it is also our lifelong meditation. It will be the work of a lifetime to consider these things and to be changed by them. Two just simple points of application as we close. First, let me encourage you to confess and continue to confess to the world this our holy faith. This faith, this truth, is what makes us a church. If we lose this truth, if we ever deny it as a church, if we ever grow bored with it or hide it in any way, then this local church is lost. Jesus will move on with others. He'll find other people. He will not be thwarted, but this church will have died. History is so clear. It's so clear. When a church loves this message, this hymn, when it really loves it, when it confesses it, to the world and to each other, that church thrives, that church lives. And the minute, the minute a denomination or a local church turns from this, it begins its death spiral. It has happened again and again and again and again. We often want to think that Christ must be primarily with those who know his word best or who have the best theology As Reformed people, we like to think, if we're being honest, we have the best theology. We have the best thinkers. We have the most books, which we probably do. Go to our libraries, you'll see uh, the reality of this. But, you know, history says it's something different. Yes, God has blessed Reformed churches tremendously. He's also blessed non-Reformed churches tremendously. 
Why? Because his real focus is on this confession and this confession going out to the nations. And wherever a church does that, holds to that, he will bless and he will be present. And, and what, however right we might be in our theology, if for a moment we lose this confession, we will be lost. All the books will not save us because it is this confession that lies at the heart of this letter And it's this confession that lies at the heart of the church. It is the pillar of the truth. It only exists for and in the truth. And so when the truth is lost, the pillar is ruined. And so, brothers and sisters, as a church, let us sing, confess, remember these things every day and tell them to our friends and family. Second, for those of you who are believers, let me encourage you to meditate even today, on these things so that you might be changed. Meditate on these things so that you might be changed. Meditate on the mystery of the gospel so that it might become for you a mystery of godliness, a mystery leading to godliness. A few miles from this building, maybe even less, there's a monastery Some of you know it. Uh, It's set uh, around a garden. And in the garden are these various spots where you can stop between sculptures of various parts of Christ's life. Now, being a Reformed Christian, I am not okay uh, with the creating of images of Christ, uh, the rubbing of their toes for good luck, or any other kinds of superstition that might go on in these places. However, uh, my daughter recently was there, and we had a talk about it. And I said, you know, this is why we're against this. And she was very on the same page. This is why we as a church don't have the stations of the cross on the side of the wall or, say, a statue of Mary downstairs or something like that. Here's why we don't do that. But, I told her, they've got one thing right there. They have a culture especially within Roman Catholicism, of meditating deeply on the mysteries of Christ's life and death. And we need to, we need to get that. We, we don't need a statue, though. We have the word of God. But we need to sit and think deeply about what it means that Christ, the Son of God, became man. How does the incarnation change the way we do our lives How does it change the way we think about the world? We need to think deeply about the role of angels in Christ's life. I'm not encouraging you to superstition. I simply am saying that as Christ, his entire life was, he received the ministry of angels. Are we wrong in thinking that angels are still active on behalf of the church, though hidden in their ministry? And maybe that can give us courage in dark moments. So many of these mysteries that are in this hymn need our full undivided attention. I don't agree with the statues, but I do agree with the idea of going somewhere and sitting quietly with your Bible and considering one mystery for an extended period of time. And as you meditate on that mystery, you will find, I'm confident, 
that whether it's his incarnation or his vindication or his suffering or his resurrection or his being taken up into glory, as you think on these things, Christ will conform his church to himself. So brothers and sisters, confess these things and meditate on these things. This is our confession, the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this lovely song in verse 16. How we thank you for believers 2,000 years ago who wrote this tune, this, this confession. May it be the confession of our heart. May we confess it to the world, and may we even this day meditate upon it so that we might be changed into the image of Christ. Father, do these things so that your glorified and vindicated Son might be further glorified in our world, for he is worthy of all the praise of our lives. And so we ask it that he might get glory. We ask it in his name. Amen.